Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. For those of you who don't know, I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive okay, Vice President of the Institute, and I'm delighted to have you here for an interesting uh, forum, different from our usual public policy talks, even different from our uh, second most favorite uh, political theory talks. But we're going to talk about Cato, the man and the legacy. Um, some of you know the Cato Institute is not named for Cato the Younger, uh, but that's certainly better than being named for Cato the Elder. I remember <laughs> getting a letter some years ago from somebody who wanted to work here because he said, I really like reading your column in National Review. Well, the column in National Review was written by different people, had nothing to do with us, and the Cato signature in National Review refers to Cato the Elder, who is also known as Cato the Censor, uh, and is best known for saying Carthage must be destroyed. So it's a different worldview from uh, the Cato Institute, and, and possibly from Cato the Younger, although uh, that's something that uh, perhaps our authors will discuss. What is relevant to us is that Cato inspired the writers who inspired the American founders and also inspired the founders of the Cato Institute. So in that sense, you, you could consider him uh, a great a, a grandfather or a great-grandfather sort of namesake. Uh, now, it's also true that Cato was no libertarian or liberal, but libertarians and liberals, and I'm intentionally being a little fuzzy here about the use of the word liberal, um, admire people who stand up to tyranny. People from Cicero and Cato to John Lilburn and Thomas Jefferson to Sophie Scholl and Vladimir Bukowski to Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi. And it was that image, the man of principle who defended the republic against the onset of Caesar's tyranny, that inspired the writers of Cato's letters and inspired George Washington and others in the founding generation. And now we are fortunate to have, and I really didn't quite believe this, I've been telling people for the past month, we're having the authors of the first biography, or so they say, <laughs> of Cato since Plutarch. But they assure me this really is the first biography of Cato uh, since Plutarch wrote one. So we're delighted to have them here. They are the authors of Rome's Last Citizen, The Life and Legacy of Cato, Mortal Enemy of Caesar. And just as I was talking about the legacy, I will note this is Joseph Addison's play, Cato, A Tragedy, plus lots of commentary. It's not this long. Uh, this play was especially popular with George Washington. Um, and this is a set of Cato's letters, the early 18th century pamphlets that were, well, not pamphlets, they were newspaper essays that were published in uh, English newspapers and then were widely read in the American colonies. Um, and it, it is actually these Cato's letters that were the... Uh, reason for the naming of the Cato Institute on the grounds that the authors of Cato's letters took the ideas of philosophers like John Locke and applied them to the policy issues of the day, and that's what we do. We take the ideas of philosophers like John Locke and Friedrich Hayek and apply them to policy issues. So our authors today, Rob Goodman, has written many things you've read or heard, though you may not have known that because sometimes they were delivered in the guise of uh, speeches or articles by Chris Dodd or Steny Hoyer. Um, 
Jimmy Sony is managing editor of Huffington Post and previously worked at McKinsey. They're both graduates of Duke where they worked and they were interested in Roman history and reading biographies and discovered there was no biography to be had of Cato. So in a very entrepreneurial instinct, <laughs> they decided to write one. So please welcome first Rob Goodman, co-author of Rome's Last Citizen. Well, thank you so much, David. Um, I want to thank you and the Cato Institute for having us. This is uh, terrific to have a chance to talk about our work and to talk about the relevance of this history for today's world and today's politics. Why don't you go ahead and come up here? For, okay, sure. For the start. So what I'd like to do is start by reading a short section from our preface that I think frames the question that we'd like to discuss today. Um, then we're going to talk a little bit about Cato's life, and Jimmy's going to talk a little bit about Cato's reception in America and in the UK and how Cato shapes our understanding of liberty today. And then we'll be dodging your questions. <laughs> so let me start with a brief selection from the preface. General Washington paused and studied his boot prints in the newly thawed mud. He took a deep breath of spring air, closed his eyes, and released the breath. He was pensive. It had been a year of long marches and small success, and winter's toll on his troops had been heavy. Food was scarce at Valley Forge. The men had to make do with a tasteless, tough, fire-baked combination of flour and water. Hundreds of horses were dead, some from sheer exhaustion, and others wasted away with hunger. The shelters the men had built could hardly handle the freezing and melting snows of the Pennsylvania winter. The entire camp seemed to be soaked and full of men yellow with jaundice, feverish with typhoid, or doubled over from diarrhea. At the end of that bitter winter, before an audience packed into a converted bakery at the Valley Forge camp, soldiers dressed in togas mounted a rickety stage and began reciting blank verse. Washington did not have many means of inspiration at his disposal, but he did have drama. And the play he chose to stage for his officer corps was the story of a Roman senator named Marcus Portius Cato the Younger. For much of the captive, bone-tired audience, the story was a familiar one. Washington, along with a good part of the world's English speakers, counted Joseph Addison's Cato a tragedy as a personal favorite. By the time the play made its debut at Valley Forge, it had already been staged 234 times in England alone. With 26 different editions in print, it had become a mandatory text for every well-read man of the day. On the front lines of his first war, a 26-year-old Washington wrote that he would rather be home, acting a part in Cato himself. Washington's peers studied and memorized the tragedy. They quoted it, consciously and unconsciously, in public statements and private correspondence. When Benjamin Franklin opened his diary, he was greeted with lines from the play that he had chosen as his motto. When John Adams wrote love letters to his wife Abigail, he quoted Cato. When Patrick Henry dared King George to give him liberty or death, he was cribbing from Cato. And when Nathan Hale regretted that he only had one life to give for his country, seconds before the British army hanged him for high treason, he was poaching the words straight from Cato. George Washington, John Adams, and Samuel Adams were all honored in their time as the American Cato. And in revolutionary America, there was little higher praise. When Washington wrote to a pre-turncoat Benedict Arnold and said, it is not in the power of any man to command success, but you've done more. You've deserved it. He too lifted the words from Addison's Cato. 
How did the legend of a Roman who walked the halls of his Senate 1,800 years before America was born speak so powerfully through the ages? And why did Washington, in the darkest moment of his career, choose Cato to lift the spirits of his army? Who was Cato? So who was Cato? We're going to talk a little bit about that today. But before we ask who Cato was, I think we also have to ask why Roman history and why does this history matter? And I can think of a few reasons. First of all, I think it matters because it's fascinating. We've been amateur Romanophiles for much of our adult lives. But for people who don't come to it with that presumption, Roman history matters for a couple of other reasons. We think it matters because it left such a deep imprint on the way the founders of our country and the founders of other liberal democracies think about democracy, representative government, elections, liberty, and all these concepts. For them, the Roman Republic was the quintessential republic of virtue. The Roman Republic was the model for a political state. We talk about Athens a lot, but the founding fathers essentially wrote off Athens. They thought that that kind of Greek democracy was a disaster. When they looked for a model, they looked to the Roman Republic. But we also think that the Roman Republic is fascinating because the issues that are so important in our politics play out even more starkly in Roman politics. I, I think a political scientist said that politics is really nothing more than the study of who gets what when. And those issues were incredibly stark in Roman times. They dealt with issues that we would be extremely familiar with, issues like welfare, like inequality, like a debt crisis, both public and private, like an expansionist foreign policy, like a changing culture under the pressures of, I think, what we can call without too much anachronism, globalization. So we can learn from how Romans of Cato's time dealt with these issues. And I want to caveat by saying that Cato and Caesar and other figures from that time do not track directly onto American politics. But we think we can learn a lot from the way they lived their lives and from the general principles they applied in the way they lived their lives. So Cato really comes to the fore in Roman politics at a time when the Republic, as we know it, and the Republic that had essentially become the hegemon in the Mediterranean world, was breaking down from the inside out. It was a time of tremendous upheaval and change. It was a time of cultural change. Because of the Roman Republic's conquests, a lot of culture and a lot of wealth was filtering into Rome and changing the society that had been stable and fundamentally conservative for centuries. Cato dealt with this essentially by presenting himself as someone out of the Roman past, someone who incarnated the founding virtues that made the Roman Republic what it was. So that was one major change. Another major change was the beginning of factionalism in Roman politics. Roman politics had always been tumultuous. There had always been very overt class conflict. There had always been, um, there had always been resistance between the plebeians and the patricians. But what happens in Cato's time is that we see the first political factions. These are not really political parties in our sense. They didn't have organizations or headquarters or party platforms. The people that led these factions were from the same social strata. They were the elite of Rome. They were all slave owners. They were all from the wealthiest um, segment of the Roman population. But they had different constituencies and different agendas and oftentimes different marriage and family alliances. The faction that Cato became the leader of and Cato became the public face of was called the Optimates. Um, this is one thing that the Romans did that we still do. They have very self-flattering party names. The Optimates meant the best men. And I'm not sure who came up with that name, but it was a very good piece of PR. The point at which Cato rises to become the public face of the Optimates is really the crisis over Catiline's conspiracy. Catiline was a 
radical populist who um, gained a lot of public support on a platform of abolishing debts um, on, a very, uh, on a very populist economic platform. But he also had plans to essentially stage a terrorist campaign against the Roman Senate that would end up capturing and killing much of the Roman Senate, would even ally with some of Rome's foreign enemies. So Cato, who had at this point developed a reputation as a Stoic and as a model of the virtuous Roman past, comes to the fore during Catiline's conspiracy by successfully <coughs> arguing against a young Julius Caesar. The issue is whether the people who've been captured in this conspiracy should be executed without a trial on grounds of national security or whether they should be given a trial. Julius Caesar succeeds in persuading the Senate that precedent demands that the Roman way is to give these people a trial. But Cato, after Caesar had swung the Senate to his side, delivers the most forceful speech of his life, essentially arguing against what he considers a moral decline of the Roman Republic that leads to Caesar's position. He's able to sway the entire Senate back over to his side for immediate execution. And at this point, Caesar, when he has lost the debate, storms out of the Senate, tries to disrupt the proceedings, fails, which leads to the execution of the conspirators, but more importantly for our purposes, leads to the lifelong enemy, enmity of Cato and Julius Caesar. The historian Sallust, who was a partisan of Julius Caesar, who was one of Julius Caesar's biggest fans, still could not keep himself from admiring Cato. He said that while Caesar grew famous and popular and powerful through his generosity, Cato grew famous and popular and powerful through the integrity of his life. Cato was a man who lived his principles. He was one of the most principled, most uncompromising politicians that we know of in Roman history or of any other history. And that's one of the things that attracts us to Cato. Even though he probably wouldn't have agreed with us, we wouldn't have agreed with him, his priorities might not have tracked on to 21st century America, but we can admire the way that he lived out the principles he stood for. But there are also consequences to this. When we talk about the triumvirate, which is essentially the alliance of Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, who were two of Rome's most ambitious generals and Rome's richest man, an alliance to essentially put control of the Republic in the hands of three men. Well, what did these three guys have in common? They really hated each other. But what they had in common was that each of them had been individually alienated by Cato. Cato had used his mastery of the Senate and mastery of Roman politics to stymie their personal ambitions one by one by one until they realized that the only way to overcome this force was to team up. So Cato's principle both made him an incredibly inspiring, personally magnetic leader in his times, but it also created an enormous opposition to Cato that leads in many ways to the death of the Republic. Another factor in Cato's life is that while he establishes an incredible example by the way he conducts his life, there are also times in which he runs away from power. When Cato ran for consul, which is the highest uh, office in the Roman Republic, in an attempt to oppose Julius Caesar, Cato essentially refuses to talk about anything but Caesar, which he thinks is the most important item on the agenda. And yet the Roman people don't want to hear about this. They want Cato to distribute bribes, like other Roman politicians did. They wanted to hear about his war record. They wanted Cato to go around with an entourage and pretend like he knew people that he didn't even know, which was what politicians do today and what politicians did then. <laughs> but Cato was having none of that. He said that someone like me would not change his manners to please anyone. And if I lost, well, that's just fair. Unfortunately, because Cato has this habit of running away from power when, by his own terms and his own understanding of liberty and the Republic, it could do the most good, this essentially damages the Republic's cause. And the point at which civil war becomes inevitable is the point at which Pompey and Caesar, who were members of the Triumvirate and then develop a, uh, a rivalry that turns into war. Just before that war, they were trying to negotiate. 
and attempt a face-saving compromise that would result in Caesar getting out of the way province and being able to keep his army without actually crossing the Rubicon and invading what is considered Roman territory. When this face-saving compromise is on the table, Cato insists to Pompey, Cato is in the room at the time because he's one of the most trusted members of the Senate, Cato insists to Pompey, you're being deceived, you're being a fool, don't listen to Caesar. Pompey listens to Cato instead of to Caesar, and the civil war is what transpires, and the fall of the Republic to Caesar is what transpires. So we think this story is both about the benefits and about the pitfalls of living a life of incredible, almost superhuman integrity like Cato did. And of course, Cato ended his life in much the same way as he lived it. When the forces of Pompeii, what was left of the forces of Pompeii, fled to Africa after Caesar's great victory at the Battle of Pharsalus, Cato was left essentially alone, without very many allies, without very many troops to resist Caesar's advance. Caesar would have offered Cato a pardon. Cato would have been able to live on in the Senate. He could have been the face of the opposition for the rest of his life. He could have been what we call a tolerated crank. He could have stood up and given these stim winders against Caesar for the rest of his life, and Caesar would not have minded because it would have made Caesar look very moderate. But Cato says, Caesar's a tyrant. Tyrants do not have the legitimate authority to pardon. Caesar cannot pardon me. I would rather take my own life and make a stand about the importance of the Republic as it existed than accept Caesar's pardon. So what Cato does is he takes the book Phaedo by Plato, which is essentially the story of Socrates' own suicide by drinking hemlock. Cato calls for it very publicly. He reads it over twice. He dismisses everyone from the room. He calls for his sword, and then he stabs himself in the guts. And then the thing that really puts Cato over the top in terms of historic residence and the way his suicide is lived on, in fact, you see it on the cover of our book. There are a few books that have spoiler alerts right on the cover, but this is how the story, this is how the story ends. At the point that Cato had stabbed himself in the guts, it was not a fatal wound because he had broken his hand punching someone in the face. He, he was that kind of guy. <laughs> it was not a fatal wound. Surgeons were called in to stitch Cato up and to save his life. Cato comes to and has the presence of mind to rip open his wound. I know. <laughs> to rip open his wound and cement his death, but also cementing his legacy as someone who was so principled that even when it led to his death, he would follow those principles all the way into suicide. After his death, Cato is turned into a political symbol of all sorts of causes he might not have identified with. The first presentation of Cato after his death is by Julius Caesar, who paints a billboard of Cato ripping himself open and has it paraded through the forum as part of his triumph. This was supposed to be a great moment for Caesar, but amazingly, as people saw this billboard going by, they started booing and hissing and groaning because Cato had become a martyr, even for people that didn't agree with him. He had somehow transcended the politics that he was a part of. Cato is an enormously important figure for the cause of Roman republicanism, even into the reign of Nero. People who resisted Nero used Cato as an icon. Lucan, who was uh, a, both a poet and a leader of the resistance to Lucan, said that in a restored republic where we have the proper gods, we would worship Cato instead of the emperor. And Cato is also an incredibly important figure in the history of Christianity both as a Christ figure, as someone who sacrificed himself for his beliefs, but also as sort of an antichrist, because Cato was the face of Stoicism, which was a philosophy that Christianity borrows a great deal from, but also needs to distinguish itself from. So the way the Christians set themselves apart is by taking a lot of Stoic language on board, but also by criticizing the figure of Cato as someone who is vain, as someone who is self-absorbed, as someone who violated the commandment against suicide because he wanted to make himself 
revered in a way that only God should be revered. So the place where I'll leave the story is after essentially a millennium of being denigrated by the Christians, the person who really saves Cato's reputation and brings us in the story that Jimmy's going to take up is Dante, because Dante has a new perspective on classics. Dante believes that Cato, as he said, is the best possible symbol of God that we have, because he was someone that was willing to sacrifice his life, and he was someone that stood for freedom, which Dante understands as Christian freedom. So there are only four pagans who are saved from hell, in, or saved from hell or from limbo in Dante's Divine Comedy. One of them is Cato, who is the guardian of purgatory, stands at the bottom of the mountain and legalistic as ever, scrutinizes people's lives and decides whether or not they can go up the mountain to eventually ascend purgatory and go into heaven. And Dante, in fact, says that on Judgment Day, at the end of history, Cato will get to go to heaven along with the rest of the faithful people. This is an amazing turnabout, but it's also in line with the way that Cato lived his life. So the story about the way that principle can both be self-limiting, but can also endure for millennia and turn Cato into an incredible model. He might not have liked the way that his legacy was used. He might not have liked the way that he was turned into a political object. But this is a man who, influ who influences our perception of Roman times, our perception of the political values that a lot of us hold dear, and even the perception of religion. So I'm going to turn it over to Jimmy, who's going to talk a little bit about how Cato has influenced more modern times and how Cato has really shaped the liberal tradition, the classical liberal tradition in America. So thanks very much. I'll turn it over. So I hope we're getting at least part of the way to answering the question that we posed at the beginning with the preface, which is, who was Cato? I want to address the question of why Cato mattered, and then hopefully in the Q&A and towards the end, we can answer the question of why we think Cato still matters today. I'm going to start with a section of our book that uh, hopefully frames this discussion. Um, it's in a chapter called Cato the Revolutionary. If the defining feature of Cato's afterlife through the time of Dante was a moral debate, the struggle to place him on a spectrum from of heathen to holy, then the centuries that followed the publication of the Divine Comedy nudged Cato into a different forum. The story of the revolutionary Cato, which began in earnest in the 18th century, was about the man and his politics. It was a debate over secular virtues. Those moments in Cato's life that suggested something divinely inspired were still fiercely debated, but the thinkers of the new era turned more and more to the substance of his public life. His outlook and his behavior is one of Rome's leading witnesses to and shapers of the crisis of the Republic. It remained, as it had always been, a life easily hyperbolized. The secular Cato was still treated as a sacrosanct figure. For the revolutionaries who consciously looked to Republican Rome for models, there was, in the words of historian Gordon Wood, no ancient hero like him. Yet again, Cato was enlarged in death, and he was still moral clay, shaped and reshaped to suit the purpose at hand. The result was a multitude of Catos, each buffed and polished, each carrying a particular message for a particular audience. There was, the Cato, there was Cato the model of civic virtue, Cato the virtuous death, Cato the hero of principled resistance. All were wild, if flattering, exaggerations. They grew from cherry-picked moments of Cato's life and rarely reflected the whole of it. Taken beyond the page, onto canvas and into song, stage, and popular, popular entertainment, Cato became a universal figure, the property of an entire culture. His death was among the best-known parables of the day. Once again, as in the early days of the Roman Principate, his life was taught as a model for schoolboys, 
on two continents, in a multitude of languages, in a wealth of media, Cato reached the greatest audience he had ever known. So where Rob leaves off is, is Dante making Cato the guardian of purgatory and asking this question that we frankly wanted emblazoned on the back of the book, which was, uh, what earthly man better represents God himself than Cato? Um, what, part of what inspired us as we began writing this was the impact that Cato had on the founding generation. We focused in our preface on the leaders of that generation, George Washington, John Adams, Ben Franklin, who all drew uh, inspiration from Cato and Joseph Addison's play, Cato, uh, A Tragedy in Five Acts. But in some ways, I, I don't want to underestimate the impact that the play had on popular culture in the late 1800s. We weren't able to confirm this, and just because the numbers are a bit sketchy, but this may have been the most popular play in American history until Arthur, Mil Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Um, it was staged a number of times, was the inspiration for Italian operas. Uh, in England, when it was first written, you actually had, it, you actually had rival Whigs and Tories competing to applaud it more loudly. Uh, the night that it was staged, uh, a Tory, I think it was a Tory, came up to the actor who was playing Cato and pressed 50 guineas into his hand and for get, offering such a robust depiction of the defense of liberty. Um, it was, it was there, there's virtually no equivalent in some ways in our day. I mean, I, I don't think anything that we have comes close to how popular this play was and the extent of the impact that it had on the founding fathers. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the anecdotes that animated the preface is the, the play at Valley Forge. George Washington is actually taking a risk here in authorizing this play. When we did the research, I think it turns out that a senior officer of Washington's made the suggestion, but that he was such a fan of the play that he almost immediately said yes. This is at a time when plays are actually banned in the colonies. So you are not actually allowed to stage plays, and Washington decides to go ahead and do it anyway. Um, we have very, again, sketchy details of the impact, but we can predict what happened given how well the play was known. Um, we look to the founders the way the founders looked to Cicero and to Caesar and to Cato. They spoke about themselves as latter-day Cicero, Caesars, and, and Catos. Uh, there's a number of moments, uh, particularly in the struggle between Hamilton and Aaron Burr, where they each refer to themselves as Caesar, and Jefferson uses the epithet too, not to lose his place in the history. Um, we were moved by this, as I think many of you will be when you, when you read the text. There is this incredible moment at Valley Forge when this play is being staged, and you think to yourself, these are soldiers, these are tired, freezing, hungry men who are discussing you know, a history that preceded them by 1,800 years. Um, the play itself is still staged to this day, and David actually confirmed this. You, you went to a staging of the play um, about two years ago. It's still staged. Here's the problem, and here's why we think it didn't outlast Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. It's a terrible read. <laughs> so Addison is commissioned by his particular political party to write a play that they can use as a propaganda piece. He starts it, and he gets four acts through, and he doesn't finish the fifth act. And then he gets a commission to travel Europe to dine with kings and write about politics. So he does that for 14 years. He doesn't finish the play. He comes back, and they say, 
we really could use the play right now. So he finishes the last act in a week, and it's a total rush job. And he, he doesn't know how it's going to land. It's been kind of a haphazard writing process. But the play is a smashing success. Um, it is, again, it's staged over 200 times in England alone. And the fact is, what he was writing was almost to the extent of what Plutarch was doing, which was a kind of didactic drama. Everything in the play is quotable. There is a reason why the lines from the play were Nathan Hale's last words. There's a reason why Washington peppers his letters with them. It's because it's a play of quotable quotes. But as everybody in this audience probably knows, a play of quotations doesn't particularly make for interesting human interaction. So this play is actually dreadful. I, I would not recommend reading it. We had to read it just to get a flavor of it. But I would not recommend reading it. It's worthwhile for the quotes that it gave to our founders. But the truth is, the play itself is kind of not all that great. Um, so we have this, this amazing play that inspires an Italian opera. It, it inspires song. It inspires poetry. That takes us up through roughly the late 1800s when the play falls out of favor. And we then kind of the, the Cato trail goes a little bit cold. Um, there's not a lot. I mean, Winston Churchill references Joseph Addison's Cato, but there isn't actually a lot in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We have one moment that I, I want to close on and then discuss a couple of things, which is there is a statue that, is still, that still remains to this day. It's in the northernmost tip of Arlington National Cemetery. It's a 30-foot high statue, and it's a statue to the Confederacy. In the early 1900s, Woodrow Wilson uh, was at the kind of ribbon-cutting ceremony for this statue, and the statue memorializes those who fought for the Confederacy, fought for what they called the lost cause. On the side of the statue, there is a, on the base, one of four sides. One of the four sides is a Latin inscription. And the Latin inscription comes from Lucan. And what's interesting about this inscription is that it has no translation, which means that you know, probably 95 plus percent of the people who have actually visited the statue have no idea what this Latin inscription says. It translates to the winning cause was pleasing to the gods. The lost cause was pleasing to Cato. And it's a line from Lucan's play that references Cato. It's an amazing thing for us to think about the mark that Cato left on the ground that many of us would consider some of the most sacred acreage in the United States, Arlington National Cemetery. Um, that is really his last mark in name, and really in sort of Latin name, until the creation of the Cato Institute. Um, we were really privileged to have David kind of sanction this book, not sanction it, but at least approve of our pursuing it early on. Uh, we, we thought that there were resonances to modern day politics, which we can get into, but I think the points that Rob touched upon about how Cato practiced politics, how he lived his life, are still relevant, just as his legacy is still relevant for us. Um, it was a challenge for us to think through how you could make this relevant in an age of new media. And I, I work at the Huffington Post, so I, I struggle with a kind of four-minute attention span on certain things. We spent four years consumed with somebody who left no written trail, with the exception of a single letter. He really didn't inscribe his name on monuments. He in all, in all honesty, didn't go out for his own glory. 
and yet we know a great deal about him based on what other people who were his contemporaries wrote. And that, for Rob and I, was to some extent a, a testament to the impact that he had on his contemporaries, that they were willing to write as much as they did about him. Um, I want to stop there because I want to give time for kind of questions and for David to ask a number of questions of us. But uh, thank you for coming and thank you for taking an interest in, in Cato, whether or not you're affiliated with the Institute <coughs> or not. I think that he's a figure who uh, helps us ask important questions about our life, about the founding generation, and about Roman politics. All right, thank you both. Let's open this up for questions. Please raise your hand, wait for me to call on you, and then wait for a microphone to get to you. And since I don't see a question immediately, I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm which is, how do you know? Cato didn't leave an autobiography. He didn't even leave any letters. We have no contemporary biographies. Did you make all this up? Short answer, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's not, it's, it's not nonfiction so much as it is uh, historical fiction. But we, we have texts. So our principal sources were sources that were either written in the time that Cato lived or immediately after. So we looked to Caesar who hated Cato, Cicero, who was ambivalent about Cato, and both of them were kind enough to write a whole lot that they left to history, including Caesar's third-person histories about himself. Um, we looked to those two sources. We also, the backbone of our narrative is Plutarch's lives uh, of noble Greeks and Romans. He is the last full, he wrote the last full-length biography of Cato the Younger, and if he thought he had the last word. He didn't reckon on us coming along and kind of tearing apart some of his conclusions. Um, we looked to him as the backbone. He had access to a now lost copy of a biography that Cicero actually wrote, um, among other texts and things that he had access to. We also looked to historians and poets and writers who wrote, again, around the time. So people like Livy, people like Tacitus, people like Suetonius, the sorts of things that you all dreaded reading about in class and if you ever took Latin. Um, they all comment or write about or write around Cato. We also thought a lot about other figures in the Optimates class and in the Optimates party that Cato would have been a part of. And we sort of tried to make some reasonable guesses and depended on a lot of the modern scholarship to kind of think through what he would have done at various stages. But you know, we, we find, oddly enough, that this person who didn't leave a written record still has kind of plenty about him in the sources. And we were able to, to use that along with what we know of the Republic to construct, hopefully, what is a, a rich life of him. And I, I think part of writing biography is the line between source knowledge and historical judgment, which obviously is something that we've tried to develop through this book. One example that I love about the way we put this into play is an example in Plutarch that's contradicted by an example in a source uh, written by pseudo-Caesar. It's basically written by one of Caesar's lieutenants under Caesar's name. What happens is that when Cato is in Utica, there is a group of marauding horsemen that used to be allies. Uh, they turned out to have turned on Cato's cause, and they're looting the city before they leave Cato alone and abandoned. In Plutarch's version, Cato goes up to them, talks to them about their awful morals, uh, reasons with them about um, private property and whatnot, and they are so ashamed they handle the things back to Cato and they kind of ride off peacefully. In Caesar's version, 
Cato pays them each off and bribes them to leave. So given what we know about one Plutarch's attitude towards Cato, which was an incredibly positive attitude, and what we know about human nature, we can say with a footnote that we think that the version that's recorded in the pseudo-Caesar biography in that case is a little more is a little more accurate. So that's one of the cases in which we've had to apply judgment to conflicting sources. But the good thing is, is that even though Plutarch, who we think is the most complete account of Cato's life from an ancient source, was not an eyewitness, he did, as Jimmy said, base his biography on eyewitness sources. One is Cicero, as Jimmy mentioned, Cicero wrote a lost biography of Cato. Um, a lot of the criticism in Plutarch come from Cicero, because although they were on the same side, we, we, we consider them frenemies. Uh, Cicero was a much more practical, accommodating politician's politician than Cato was, and Cato both inspired and infuriated Cicero. So a lot of the negative comments in Plutarch get in there from Cicero. A lot of the other comments about Cato as a Stoic, about the way he lived his life, come from a friend named Munatius Rufus, who was one of Cato's Stoic companions. They were army buddies. They shared a tent. Uh, he acted as sort of a secretary to Cato, was eyewitness to a lot of these other events, also wrote a lost life of Cato, which found its way into Plutarch's account and could be traced back. So it, it is difficult constructing one of these histories, but there are other sources such as uh, Socrates or even Jesus for which people use the same method of trying to suss out what's eyewitness and what's not and applying our judgment to them. And it's the best you can do. But for a figure like this who has been incredibly influential, it's something that needs to be done, we think. Yeah, there's one, uh, just two other thoughts on this. The first is that for most Romans of note, we actually know very little about their early life. And we acknowledge this at the beginning of the text that Romans just didn't consider childhood worth writing about. Um, and so we, we know very little of most Romans' early life, so we have to make some educated guesses about what happened to Cato, how he lived. We know certain facts about kind of his upbringing and his education, his background, but there's actually very little about Cato and his contemporaries. Um, the other thing is we know a lot about Cato the Elder, who was Cato the Younger's great-grandfather, and we know it because he wrote it down. He wrote a number of texts that became... Uh, primary text for Latin. He wrote a book on agriculture that was hugely popular, a very important book. Um, he wrote much more down. Cato the Younger tried to model his life on the life of his ancestor. He tried to model his life on the life of Cato the Elder. And so we can use that along with what we know about Stoicism, again, to make refined, scholarly, educated guesses about certain aspects of his life. And then much of the narrative just comes through us through the narrative of the Republic, which Cicero and Caesar and others have done the telling of. Yes, right here. O'Day, Aberdeen. Do we have a modern Cato today in America? We get, we get asked this question a lot. Um, and, you know, in the, at the beginning of the book, you know, when we, when we wrote it, we, we've sort of taken elements of Cato and applied them from everybody as diverse as Ron Paul... James Garfield, uh, John, Pres McCain. John McCain, President Obama, Obama, George Washington. If At the point that we're at now, the closest, we think, is uh, Ron Paul. But even there, there's a figure of some complexity. It's tough, to us to it's tough for us to make those kinds of direct connections. You have to think of somebody who, who runs away from power when it can serve his cause the most, who is willing to die for principle, and by the way, we live in an era when people are barely willing to vote on principle, um, but he's willing to take his own life for a principle, and somebody who is, is, a, is a phenomenally kind of 
odd figure. Cato goes around in strange colored clothing, walks around Rome in strange colored clothing for an extended period of his, of his life. He does this because he wants to, people to laugh at him. And he does that because he wants to become immune to people's criticism and laughter. So his stoic training teaches him that if he goes without shoes, if he goes commando on his toga, that he will become hardier, that he will learn to pay attention to only that which matters. And the only thing that matters is virtue. So it doesn't matter that he wears odd-colored clothing and people laugh at him. In fact, this is a sort of moral exercise in training himself to become better. This is the equivalent, I think, and we think, of a congressman walking around in a tri-cornered hat, right? Not just doing it on public occasions, but all the time, all the living time. like that. Yeah. The other thing about Cato that we think is, the shorter answer is, is that this is such a unique figure that you're not going to see someone living out his principles in politics as fully as Cato did. But we do think that Cato establishes a lasting way of being a public figure, of what a public figure does to get authority, of a couple of strategies public figures use to get authority. One of those is the appeal to the idealized past. And it's amazing, like Jimmy said, that in the way that the founders appealed to Rome, and we appeal to the founders, well, what did the Romans appeal to? That was the golden age, right? No, 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 they, they looked even further back. So Cato was convinced that he was living in a degenerate, backsliding age. So he hearkened back to his great-grandfather's generation, to the Romans that defeated Hannibal and that established this empire. So one, Cato is, I think, in some sense, the forerunner of those politicians who look back to an idealized past to get authority. We think he's also the forerunner of those politicians who present themselves as above politics, as figures who transcend politics, because the kind of politics that Cicero loved the speech-making, the deal-making, the compromises, the coalition-building, was everything that Cato hated. So in one sense, it made Cato ineffective, but in another sense, it gave him much more popular authority as a politician who was above all of the nasty stuff down there than he would have been able to get otherwise. He was not like Julius Caesar, an incredibly successful general, even though he was very competent. Uh, he was very personally brave. He did not exactly conquer Gaul. He was not an organizational genius like Pompey. He didn't have Cicero's eloquence. He wasn't very good looking. <laughs> but what he did have was this idea of presenting himself as the arbiter of what the Romans called most maiorum, which is really the way of the ancients, the way of the fathers. Because he was able to present himself as the arbiter of these values, as someone who could look down on politics from a different point, he got tremendous leeway to be the way that he was in Roman politics. So we think that when people do that, they're also borrowing a strategy from Cato. Uh, John Samples, Cato Institute. Uh, I noticed in your discussion of the sort of reception history of, uh, okay, uh, the discussion of his influence in, in the United States, you focused on history's winners among the founders. But in fact, one of history's losers also took uh, the name Cato, the uh, anti-federalist mm -hmm, Cato mm -hmm. who wrote a series of papers. Uh, and in fact, he wrote a paper about the presidency that said uh, the office of the president was warning Americans the office of the presidency will grow into, well, what it's grown into, right? Uh, and here I think there's a connection to the Cato Institute of today. My colleague Gene Healy has written about the cult of the presidency. I've, yeah, I've, I've read a lot of that book. He's mm -hmm. been very critical of executive power, claims mm -hmm. of ex executive power. So I wonder if uh, the question I have is you must have come, you did come across this during your research. Is it your sense that uh, the anti-federalist Cato had much influence? Is it your sense that Americans of that time responded to the Cato? Did they think that the anti-federalist represented Cato better than the federalist did? Well, I think, one, there, there's the sense that 
as you said, the losers of history tend to get written out of history in a way that's not entirely unfair. I think, as we discussed before we came in here, I think the Cato who wrote the Anti-Federalist Papers was George Clinton. And if I'm correct, George Clinton was from New York, which was a state where the Constitution, um, it, favored the, by the Federalist Papers, was a very close-fought issue. There's, a, there's suspicion that it was George Clinton. They're not entirely sure. George Clinton goes on to become the fourth vice president of the United States. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it, there's, there's suspicion that it was George Clinton. So w what I was going to suggest is that, is that, one, there's the sense that that Cato was more influential in his time in making, say, the vote in New York very close run. I think in the state legislature, the Constitution was passed by just a couple of votes. It was a very close run vote. So that history, I think, has tended to be downplayed. But also, we think that one of the ways that Cato is relevant is a little bit more in line with the anti-federalist Cato is in the way that Cato thinks about liberty. Uh, liberty is a very slippery, difficult concept to talk about because a lot of people mean entirely different things when they use the same word. You, you might know Isaiah Berlin's essay about the two concepts of liberty. Um, positive liberty and negative liberty. The kind of liberty that Cato was talking about is really is freedom from domination. Mm -hmm. It's the liberty of, well, it's really the liberty of a small group, but the idea is that government can be both more promoting a virtue and more effective when we don't put power in the hands of a single person. Um, Cato and Caesar may have agreed on some things in the context of Roman politics, but what they did not agree on was Cato's idea that liberty was consistent with Rome being governed by a body, by a senate that was elected, that had some kind of accountability, that had some kind of rotation through office. Caesar was famously all about efficiency. Caesar realized, and we think correctly, that the Roman Republic could not exist in the form that it had for very much longer. But his solution to this was not reform, really, but was dictatorship, was the idea that one man pursuing the most efficient policies can fix the republic himself. And there's a great story about Caesar's impatience is that as a politician, Caesar um, had to attend the games, chariot races, fights, all those sorts of things that politicians have to do when they go eat a corn dog at the Iowa State Fair. And Caesar's advisors would tell him, you have to go to the games, you have to wave and smile. And Caesar would say, I'm wasting time. I have to be reading and writing letters. So he'd go up there, he'd sit in his box, and he'd spend the entire time writing letters because Caesar was just the sort of person who valued efficiency and quickness, the sort of values that aren't really promoted by the kind of liberty that Cato talks about, which is shared governance, which is um, governance by the group. But we, we do think that's a way that the way that Cato talked about Rome really tracks on to the criticism that the Cato and the Anti-Federalists was making of the presidency. The other, the other thing is, as we so when we did the research on kind of Cato in the 1700s, you, you discover very quickly that the play just has a life of its own. Uh, so to the extent that Cato's letters, the 144 newspaper tracts, become sort of required reading for educated men of the day, it's also the case that the play is seen by a broad audience. Uh, it's not just the sort of literati. It's 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 it is a popular audience, and so. Um, there is a kind of palpable connection to the character that doesn't necessarily exist with the anti-federalist essays, um, and that's where we that's where we we just had more to to go on. To be honest, I mean, there's just a lot more written about and talked about Addison's Cato than there are other texts. Right here in front. Thanks, I'm Indy Dadagupta. I'm wondering uh, how. I'm wondering how. Uh, Cato would deal with situations that I think many of us might relate to more um, who, who are not necessarily in public life. But when we 
compromise on principles, I think, in our daily lives. It's often because we feel that there's actually competing principles or there's mm -hmm. obligations to family or something else that's different. Are there examples of him <laughs> dealing with these sorts of tensions? It sounds uh, like uh, he obviously was willing to sacrifice power, his own sort of physical life, his existence, but it, would he be willing to sacrifice a, a child or... or uh, something like that. We actually have a pretty uh, robust and disturbing answer to that question based on his life. So at, at one point, <clears throat> an older friend of Cato's named Hortensius comes to him and says, I need an heir and I want to have an heir with your daughter. And he says, well, that's not possible because my daughter is married to another man and I, I'm not going to end that marriage. So Hortensius comes back and says, well, okay, you've had kids, why don't I have an heir with your wife? And so Cato thinks about it, and he, he, he says yes. And his justification is that in the Stoic tradition, one of the, the sort of tenets of Stoicism at the time was that, that the community was to be used for the maximization of the best possible progeny, and that Hortensius, a distinguished senator, and his wife, you know, a faithful, upstanding member of the community could, could essentially procreate better people for the community. Um, he buys this line of logic, he divorces his wife, and he actually walks her to the altar of the wedding. Um, Hortensius marries, marries Cato's now ex-wife. Uh, I think they have a child. Hortensius dies two years later, and Cato remarries his ex-wife. Um, he is willing the to... The record of what you thought about this. Right, yeah, there's no discussion. I they're, they're essentially like trading over her like a piece of, of land. I mean, it's, it's really, it's part of Cato's biography that he doesn't explain in his own time. And by the way, Romans were aghast at this. They thought this was ludicrous. The same way, the same looks you're giving us now, the Romans were giving Cato. Um, and so he, he follows his line of logic down kind of blind alleys and absurd arguments. I mean, he is willing to go to the very end. Another example of this that's more practical, that's more connected to his life in war and politics is he's given the chance to take control of the army at a very crucial time um, in the Civil War. He is, by all accounts, the person that ought to do it, the person most respected by the troops. And... They come to him and they say, Cato, we'd like you to take command of the, the military. He says no. He says no because the Constitution actually says that that guy should do it. He's two rungs on the ladder ahead of me. And they said, well, that guy's a halfwit and he'll lead the army to destruction. And he says, well, I'm not going to violate the Constitution. And they give control of the army to, this, uh, to the other general. He does lead the army into a, a disastrous battle. And Cato is able to kind of remain on his high plane of principle. So there are times when Cato is principle, which again, we find partly inspirational, partly insufferable, right? Because there are times when he follows it, even when it does damage to the causes that he is looking to champion. And I'd also say that when you're talking about these value conflicts that I think we all recognize in our lives, where we have two values that are both pressing, we can't reconcile them, that's really the definition of tragedy. And there are some circumstances in which tragedies happen. And not tragedies like car crashes, but tragedies like two irreconcilable values in which you can only say, well, God help you, you're going to make a bad decision either way. But the interesting thing about Cato's thought is that Stoicism does not have room for tragedy. Stoicism and tragedy cannot coexist because Stoicism essentially teaches that there is a unitary good and a unitary bad. All goods are equally good, all bads are equally bad. So a famous Stoic paradox is that 
someone who kills a chicken that he should not have killed is just as bad as someone who kills his own father, which strikes us as very strange. But in the Stoic scheme, in which there was only black and white, in which you were either sinfully, it's a bit of an anachronistic word because we, we associate it with Christianity, but to say that someone who was, who was full of bad was someone who committed any kind of bad actions. So if the analogy that they use, the Stoics, was if you're under the water a foot, you're drowning. If you're under the water a mile, you're drowning. The only way to be good is to be entirely good. And they recognize that people could not achieve this goal, but they also recognized or they felt that once your head was above the water, there could be none of you that was bad. There was no compromise in Stoicism. There was no way to reconcile these because it was an either-or decision. It was a very hard, uncompromising philosophy, which is why it was really tailor-made for Cato's personality. Stoicism, at the time that Cato embraced it, was a foreign import. It was Greek. A lot of people thought of Stoicism as a cult. A lot of people thought of it as as odd, just in the way that I described, talking about these Stoic paradoxes. Cato made Stoicism respectable, and part of the way he did that was because it fits so well onto the personality that he already had and helped shape that personality in the direction that he was probably already going in. So the reason that Stoicism goes into the mainstream of Western thought and has that influence on other philosophies, on neo-Stoics, on, on Montaigne, on Christianity itself, is because Cato took what was, in many respects, regarded as a cult and put it right at the center of Roman life, even though that led him down some blind alleys. In the back. Thank you. Is there any evidence that... Hold uh, the mic up. Any evidence that uh, posthumously uh, Cato influenced the demise of, of Caesar? That's one question. Oh, and, but, yeah. And the second question is, I don't recall in my reading, but does Shakespeare reference Cato? Mm-hmm. I think there's, I think there's a mention of Cato in mention Julius of, Caesar, but he's not really a character. But we will talking about about Brutus and the conspiracy that leads to Caesar's death. Um, Brutus, first of all, is as close to anyone comes as being Cato's heir. Yeah. Brutus is Cato's son-in-law. He marries Cato's daughter Portia. The circle around Brutus called themselves the Liberators. They took a lot of their ideology, a lot of the way they justified their cause, a lot of the way they thought about themselves, was straight from Cato's rhetoric about Caesar. Cato essentially took this point of view that Caesar was a tyrant in the making, that Caesar was destroying liberty rather than a Caesar had it reforming the republic to make it more efficient and better. Cato took that point of view and, again, by sticking to it for so long and so doggedly, injected it into the Roman mainstream. So a lot of the people that are part of the circle of the liberators, including Brutus, who's basically Cato's heir, justify themselves in the terms that, um, that Cato set up. Brutus had followed around Cato for much of his life. Brutus acted as Cato's secretary. Brutus took notes for Cato. Brutus actually was involved in a little financial skullduggery <laughs> under the cover of being Cato's secretary. So Brutus had a bit of a sordid past before he became the liberator of the Republic. Uh, we, we found some sources who basically said that, in, in as many words, that when the conspirators... Um, assassinated Caesar, in many ways it was Cato who was directing the knives. That, that's a little pat, it's a little neat, because this might have happened even if Cato had not had this ideological influence. But what he does is take something that may have happened anyway, because elites have turned on uh, populist figures and dictators many, many times. But because of Cato's influence, something that might have happened anyway, really became much more dignified and much more justified because it was the logical consequence of what Cato preached for his whole life. 
one more anecdote that I, that I love is that in the Divine Comedy, as we said, uh, Cato gets saved. Cato's the guardian of purgatory. At Judgment Day, he's going to go up to heaven. Well, guess who's one of the three people in Satan's mouth? Brutus, because he killed Caesar, which just shows how attenuated the link between Cato and the politics he represented became in his afterlife, because Cato could be made to symbolize virtue without any connection to the politics that he actually promoted in his life. There's, there's another a smaller sort of example of this as well, which is that the suicide was kind of made into this parable immediately after the death of Cato. So what Caesar does, as Rob described, is parade a billboard, a really grisly billboard of Cato around Rome. And what he thinks is that this is going to lead people to finally see the kind of subhuman ferocity of this man, that he really was not one of us. But what it does is that the, you know, the crowd boos and they cry and they, they, you know, they remember Cato differently. His pub, Caesar's publication of his anti-Cato is such, it, it's such a hatchet job that it turns off so many people who otherwise may have just sort of gone quietly, right? At the same time that this is happening, Cicero is kind of figuring out what he's going to do in a post-Republic world. And he, seeing what's happening with the anti-Cato, decides to publish a pro-Cato. So in the immediate aftermath of Cato's death, there is this kind of competition for you know where Cato is going to stand in the Roman consciousness. And our sense and what we write about in the book is that this presumably shaped the people who later called themselves the liberators because you know, it's, they obviously are not going to identify with Caesar's version of the story, but it's highly likely that Cicero's was just as whitewashed as, as, as Caesar's was kind of polemical. Thank you. Could you say a few words about Cato and his use of the filibuster? It's, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, something Cato's sometimes credited with mm -hmm. inventing. The history and has modern resonance. I'm wondering if you could talk about the Roman context, but also whether there's a sort of direct afterlife of Cato's filibuster. Well, the and history that strategy. The history of the filibuster essentially the first history's first recorded filibuster belongs to Cato the Younger. Um, we, we wrote about this a bit in The Atlantic, and the piece kind of had a sort of mini, took on a sort of mini life of its own. But Cato is able to talk from dawn to dusk at length about any topic in service of frustrating the agenda of people that he disagreed with. Um, he, there's a moment in the story when Caesar is trying to pass a land reform bill, and Cato, it's a fairly moderate bill, and frankly, Rome kind of needed land reform. The city was swelling with people, fires were breaking out, people were dying, there was pestilence and all that. And Cato just disagrees. He just says that this bill is not Roman. It violates everything that, the, that our ancestors would have, uh, that if they fought for, that they've toiled for. And so he filibusters the bill to, to a close, and this is partly what motivates Caesar to do what he did. It's it's interesting. I mean, he, Cato doesn't give set. He doesn't give prepared speeches. He follows the advice of his great grandfather, and the advice was, stick to the point. The words will come. Um, and so, what he essentially does is just kind of stay on a topic until time runs out, and he just does this over and over and over again. Uh, and as we mentioned, he manages to alienate. 
both his opposition, but also people who didn't necessarily have to become opponents. He manages to alienate people like Pompey, who actually were looking to curry favor with Cato, but he does it with one of the tools of the Roman Constitution. The other thing about Cato was that his reverence for the Constitution had sort of both this kind of, it was a reverence for the past, it was also a reverence for arcane constitutional tools that he could use to frustrate certain, uh, certain of his opponents. So he really studies the filibuster, as we understand it, he studies the filibuster and then uses it to great effect during, the, uh, during various constitutional debates. Another, another instance in which Cato did this, as I said, that one thing that brought together the members of the triumvirate is that they were each alienated by Cato, and they were, in many ways, each alienated by Cato through the filibusters. Um, there's another great instance. How did, how did Cato end up taking off uh, Crassus, who was the richest man in Rome? Well, one of the ways in which he ticked off Crassus was that Crassus was an ally of the Roman tax collectors. Uh, tax collectors in Rome were private contractors who were essentially given tax contracts, sent out to raise the money themselves, and deliver it back with any kind of profit they could scrape off the top. The issue is that the tax collectors in a certain year, the year of the triumvirate, because there had recently been a war in the eastern provinces, were not getting as much money on their contracts as they thought they were supposed to get. So they went back to the Senate and said, Senate and said well, can we renegotiate our contracts so we can make more money off of this? And Crassus, who is an ally of these people, who will probably is making money off of this deal because he's making money off everything, that's just what he does, um, he pushed very strongly for this deal to be re renegotiated. Cato's position was really simple. A contract is a contract. They signed it. We don't renegotiate contracts. We don't negotiate with tax collectors. So <laughs> the, the funny thing is that Cicero, because we have Cicero's letters, and Cicero is on both sides of everything. Um, at one point he says, I'm going to quote the book here, Cicero calls the demand of the tax collectors a scandalous affair, a disgraceful request, and a confession of foolhardiness. But we need to give it to them anyway. Cato shuts down the entire Senate until the tax collectors go away, which they eventually do. And then Cicero writes later on, it is now three months that he's been worrying these wretched tax collectors, who used to be great friends of his, and won't let the Senate give them an answer. So we are forced to suspend all decrees on other subjects until the tax collectors have had an answer. We can't even receive foreign ambassadors. So Cato, because of this stand, shuts down the entire Senate until the tax collectors give up. So this strategy, very effective in the short term, but ended up alienating some very powerful people. All right, let's end the formal session there. The book is Rome's Last Citizen. You can buy copies of it outside, and I'm sure the authors would be glad to sign them. Uh, we'll be serving lunch on the second floor, which you can reach by the spiral staircase or the elevator. Uh, thank you, Jimmy Sony. Thank you, Rob Goodman. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.